Session five, I'm calling this session, What's Next in the Middle East? At the time of this filming, it's early 2011, and we're in the early stages of the turnover, the various protests and radical shift in the Middle East. And while I'm sure in the next uh, several years, even the next decade, there'll be many twists and turns, I think it's important that we take some time to discuss what the Bible says about where this thing is going where these uh, riots and these turnovers and the various transitions in various nations throughout the Middle East, where this is leading, because I believe that the Bible does have some very relevant passages that speak to this very situation. So we've been in the book of Daniel, and we're going to actually continue in Daniel chapters 8 and 11, but we want to begin by discussing really the pan-historical Uh, playing out of the conflict between God's promised plan down through the ages and the the effort of Satan during the same time frame to thwart the plan of God in the earth. So in Revelation 13 and 17, really beginning with uh, Revelation 12 and then 13 as well as 17, we have this picture of a woman. This is Revelation 12 and she gives birth to the male child. And we're just going to touch on this very briefly But there before the woman and before the child is the dragon, and he desires to devour the woman and her child. Now, the woman, in brief, is a picture of God's promised plan, his redemptive plan down through history. She is the woman, Zion. She is Jerusalem. She is the embodiment and the personification of God's promised plan down through the ages. And it is through Zion, through Jerusalem, that he brings forth the male child, which is, of course, Christ. This is Jesus, through whom the redemption of the earth would come. And the dragon, of course, is Satan. And from the beginning, he is desired to devour and destroy and thwart the promised plan of God, and as well, obviously, to destroy his uh, Messiah, destroy the Messiah. And then, as we, as we carry on in the passage, we see that this beast comes up out of, uh, out of the sea. It comes up out of humanity. And this beast, this gruesome beast, is a perfect mirror image of the dragon. And what scholars have uh, pointed to, and what I'm in agreement with, is that this beast represents the, uh, the physical embodiment of Satan in the earth. And what do I mean by that? is the beast is portrayed as having seven heads. And the seven heads represent seven historical pagan empires. And so it is through the vehicle or through the, uh, the medium of empire that down throughout history, Satan has attempted to thwart the promised plan of God. It is through a series of seven satanic pagan empires throughout biblical history that Satan has made efforts to destroy the Jewish people and the plan of God in the earth. So which empires are these? Which empires are we talking about? Well, the first empire, of course, was Egypt. And going back to you know, the biblical story as the Hebrews were coming up out of Egypt and Pharaoh was trying to destroy uh, the Hebrew people, that is the first satanic, the first pagan empire that Satan used. It was his first primary vehicle in the earth through which he was attempting to destroy the people of God. And then you had Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And as we've discussed already, the seventh empire is the Islamic empire. And that is the most recent pagan, uh, satanically inspired, anti-Yahwistic, anti-Christic, anti-Semitic empire in the earth. 
Now, it's Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel 11 that deal with the transition between a couple of these empires. And I believe that these two chapters speak with great relevance with regard to what we will see in the days to come. So we begin with Daniel chapter 8. And this is speaking of the transition from the Medo-Persian Empire as the Alexandrian Greek Empire uh, took over and conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. So beginning with verse 3 in Daniel chapter 8, it says, I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. So this ram with two horns, which is lopsided, is speaking of the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the empire which, the emphasis of which was the Persian uh, side, that was the, the most dominant, and then the Medo, uh, the Median portion of the empire was weaker, and thus the one horn is larger than the other. This is the same image that was portrayed previously in Daniel 7, in the image of the bear that is, is lopsided. He is raised up on one side. That was a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire, and you can go back and look at that. And then as we move on, it says, I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. So it's speaking in verses 3 and 4 of the conquering of the Medo-Persian Empire. As it came to sweep across the Middle East, it conquered the Babylonian Empire. It controlled that whole region. And then we get to verse 5, Daniel 9, 5 through 7, and it begins transitioning to the time when Alexander the Great came and conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel says this, as, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west. So we have the ram with two horns, and now we have a goat, and the goat has one prominent horn. It's a, uh, it's a unicorn goat. And it crosses the whole earth without touching the ground, so it is a, it is a super unicorn goat. And it came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it with great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. So Alexander the Great sweeps out of Macedonia. He sweeps out of Europe, sweeps all the way across the Middle East, conquering the Medo-Persian Empire. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. So in very uh, brief and broad sweeping terms, the Bible uses the symbolism of a goat and a ram to describe the shifting of the guard, the transition from one of these historical pagan beast empires to the next. And if we were to look at a map, we can see that the Alexandrian Greek Empire came from uh, Macedonia all the way well into India, right through modern-day Iran, extending up into uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Kazakhstan, throughout that entire region. And then what happened was suddenly, at the time of the, the greatest uh, uh, extent of the, the dominance of the Greek Empire, suddenly, as history tells us, Alexander died. And what followed what was called the Wars of the Diadochi. Now, the Diadochi or the Diadochi were simply successors. These were the generals of Alexander that after he died, they began to squabble and duke it out for control of the empire. Initially, you had uh, close to a dozen, but very quickly it boiled down to four primary generals that were 
uh, trying to divide up the, the Alexandrian Greek Empire. And then by the third century, after uh, the wars of the Diadochi, after they had really been clashing, uh, the, the empires were really consolidated down to two primary dynasties. And so as you can see, you had the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire was largely, uh, it, it possessed the majority of the Alexandrian Greek Empire. It swept from Asia Minor, again, well all the way uh, into India, that's modern-day Turkey, all the way over, again, through Iran into Central Asia. And then down in the south, you had the Ptolemaic Kingdom. This was the North African, uh, the Egyptian Kingdom. And these were the two primary dynasties or empires that controlled the uh, Alexandrian, the Hellenistic world of, of that day. And then in Daniel 11, again, Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 are both speaking of the historical play out of this development as, as the Alexandrian Greek Empire conquered these territories and then the wars of the Diadochi, and then they both shift to the end times. And so while Daniel 8 describes these historical events, and while Daniel 11, much of the chapter also deals in detail with the outplaying of the historical battles and all of the various events that led to the consolidation of the empire between the Seleucid and again the Ptolemaic uh, dynasties, suddenly it shifts and prophetically it shifts from the historical and it begins speaking of the end times. It begins speaking of that which will take place in the last days. And so Daniel 11, the, the shift really begins in verse 36. So it's been talking about the uh, historical clashes, and suddenly it shifts, and it begins speaking of something that never applied to the historical situation. It shifts from discussing Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the leader of the Seleucid dynasty, who clashed with uh, the Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic uh, dynasty, and then it shifts to uh, Daniel 11, verse 36 through 38, and it says this, "...the king will do as he pleases." He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. So the Antichrist, and scholars agree that we are now speaking of the Antichrist. It's no longer speaking of the historical Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. It's now speaking of the Antichrist. And it says he will prosper until the indignation is finished. The Lord will allow the Antichrist to prosper. He will allow the Antichrist to be successful in all he does, and the Lord will allow his people to be conquered, to be defeated, to be crushed, to be crucified, if you will, corporately, for the purpose of purging them and refining them and drawing out in them long-suffering and, and the character of Christ. But that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. Now, this is where the Bible, in the first example, the first uh, case, it begins to define and actually discuss the theology, the belief system of the Antichrist. And in previous sessions, we discussed the fact that the book of Daniel consistently is pointing us to the nature, the character, the theology, the geography, all sorts of different characteristics of the coming Antichrist empire. And here in Daniel 11... It begins to describe for us specifically the theology of the Antichrist. And it says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. 
Now again, this is one of those very uh, difficult uh, passages in the book of Daniel that has been widely debated. I would argue and I would submit to you that what it's saying here when it says no regard for the gods of his fathers, it's the same phrase that is used in every other case in the Bible that is making reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is Elohim Ab, or Ab Elohim, and then it's the comma, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every time that phrase is used, it is always followed up by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So essentially, it's speaking of the God of the Bible. It's speaking of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then it says, nor will he show regard for the desire of women. Now, of course, the popular... Uh, interpretation of this, or at least it's often speculated in, in prophecy circles that this is proof that the Antichrist will be a homosexual. And so if you're to read many very popular prophecy books, the Antichrist will be, you know, a gay Frenchman. He's a, he's a gay European, and he's going to raise up a military coalition, and he's going to behead uh, Christians throughout the earth, and this is actually what is presented. I would submit to you that this phrase... Uh, he will show no regard for the desire of women is simply a Hebraic uh, phrase, a, a Hebraic expression, which was a reference to the Messiah. And because the Messiah was the one that was desired by every Jewish woman, they desired to be the mother, the blessed one that would bring forth the Redeemer into the earth. This was simply a, a euphemism for the Messiah. So it says here that the Antichrist will show no regard for the Father or the Son. He will show no regard for Yahweh or his Messiah, his Moshiach. And so here we have, I believe, the, the, very, uh, the very passage that John the Apostle later quotes in his first epistle when he says, this is the theology of the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. I believe that John was actually making reference to this very passage. Here you have this twofold uh, denial of the Antichrist and this twofold denial of the Father and the Son is repeated in several places throughout the scriptures. It speaks of it in Psalm 2, the nations they gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Messiah. In John 16, 2, it says that the days are coming when those who kill you will believe they're offering God a service. And that they do these things because they do not know the Father and they do not know me. They deny the Father and the Son. They don't know the Father nor do they know the Son. And then it says, nor will he show any regard for any other God. So, so far, we have three statements regarding his theological beliefs. Uh, he denies the God of the Bible. He denies God the Son. And then he denies every other God, all the other gods throughout the earth. But then the, the next phrase, the fourth component, is that which is most often left out. And it says, but there is a God that he will honor. There is a God that he will honor. It says, instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, or essentially a God of war. And of course, it's not a, a long stretch to suggest that what it's speaking of here is a God of jihad, a God of war. And as we've discussed previously, the God of, uh, of Islam, Allah, bears far more continuity to the various ancient Near Eastern war and astral deities than he does to the God of the Bible. You can say that Allah, the God of uh, Islam, is, the, you know, is portrayed as the creator of all things. But historically, there are many, many uh, reasons to suggest that 
the God of the Quran is simply just yet another manifestation of any number of ancient Near Eastern astral and war deities, except in these last days, he's actually presenting himself to be the God of the Bible. You know, throughout history, in all of these various persecuting beast empires, whether it was the Egyptian or the Babylonian Empire, in all the various Eastern gods, whether it was Baal or Sin or Marduk, these were always presented as gods that were in competition or in conflict with the God of Israel. But in these last days, uh, this false god has actually tried to clothe himself and present himself as if he is the God of the Bible. It is one more manifestation of false satanic worship, this time clothed and presenting himself as if he is the one true God. So, here you have again the fourfold theological statement of the Antichrist. He denies the God of the Bible. He denies the Son. He denies every other God. He exalts himself above all these other gods, but he does honor the God of fortresses, the God of war, or as I said, the God of jihad, a God whom his fathers did not know. Now we need to recognize that when it says his fathers, it's not speaking literally about his father or his grandfather. It's speaking of his ancestors. It's speaking of his father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's been a lot of discussion on this passage. People saying, well, this is a clear indication that he must be a Jew because only a Jew could not show regards for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, the problem with that is that Father Abraham... Uh, as we sing in the, uh, in the child care classes, Father Abraham had many sons. And it's not at all unreasonable to suggest that as a physical or a spiritual Ishmaelite or a physical spiritual Edomite or a descendant of these, uh, this side of the Abrahamic family that left behind the God of Israel, that they could in fact be rejecting the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In exchange, they are following the God of Islam. So, here you have the fourfold uh, theological statement of the Antichrist. A little bit of a diversion, but it's, in, it's essential that we touch on that. And then it says that the Antichrist will honor this God with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And then we come to verse 39. Verse 39 through 41, continuing on. It says the Antichrist will take action. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help, again, of this foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many. He will parcel out land for a price. And now here is the clear shift, the clear indicator that we are not speaking about history, but it says at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. What does it mean when it says the king of the south? Well, again, we looked at uh, a map which, which uh, shows us that across the north we had the Seleucid Empire. That was the king of the north. And throughout Daniel 8 and 11, it speaks of the Antiochus Epiphanes and the various kings that ruled the Seleucid Empire as the king of the north. And then the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south was the king of the south. So it's really this clash between the northern alliance and the king of the south, the southern alliance, the northern uh, Middle Eastern dynasty or empire, and then the North African empire, the king of the north, the king of the south. And it says, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. So now again, we're looking at the Antichrist, the Antichrist who will rule over initially a, 
a uh, empire or a dynasty or a union or an alliance which will very much resemble the Seleucid Empire. So again, in modern terms, this is Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Iran, extending over into Central Asia. The Antichrist will initially control this northern region, the, uh, something very similar to the ancient uh, Seleucid dynasty. And then you will have the emergence again of a end times Ptolemaic dynasty, a North African alliance. And it says at the end time, this North African alliance, the king of the south, will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. So it's speaking of the military victories of the Antichrist, the northern king, as he sweeps through various Middle Eastern uh, countries. He will be successful. He will also enter the beautiful land. And many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. And then it says, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So it groups these three together. In all likelihood, it would seem to indicate that it's pointing us to the modern-day nation of Jordan. Uh, that's, that's one possibility, of course. We could be off, but of course, geographically, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, this is the geographic location that uh, that's pointing us to. And so will the nation of Jordan somehow escape the, uh, the conquering of the Antichrist in the last days? Daniel 11 seems to potentially indicate that. But again, we need to hold that uh, in a humble way in consideration. And beginning with verse 42. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. So it begins to show us, it begins to describe for us, this end-time clash between the king of the north and the king of the south. And it says the land of Egypt will not escape. The Antichrist will clash with the king of the south, the Egyptian coalition, the Egyptian, uh, the end-time Ptolemaic revival. But it says Egypt will not escape from the military conquering of the Antichrist, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and sil silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites will follow at his heels. Now, there are many translations that put the word Cush there as Ethiopians. But we need to be very careful because it's actually uh, it's a misnomer. Uh, ancient Cush is actually modern-day Sudan. Ancient Abyssinia is modern-day Ethiopia. But uh, there's, there was a shift, whereas you know, it was called Ethiopia in the past. Today, it's called Sudan. And so, really, a more accurate translation of Cush would be Sudan. So he will gain control over the precious things of Egypt, the Libyans, the Sudanese, and it very well could include that whole region extending down into Ethiopia. But uh, I just, on a personal level, I just love the nation of Ethiopia. I love the Ethiopians, this ancient, beautiful uh, Christian uh, culture, largely a Christian culture. And so I'm holding out in intercession for the Ethiopians. Uh, but clearly, when it says Cush, it's referring to Sudan. Could it be including Somalia and Ethiopia and Eritrea? Certainly it could. But as intercessors, let's pray that the Ethiopians will hold out. So it says the Libyans and the Sudanese or the Cushites will follow at his heels. So the Antichrist will conquer Egypt and Libya and Sudan and this North African alliance will then come under his sway, will come under his authority. And then it has just this sort of uh, interesting 
comment, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So what we've seen is that Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, they give us the historical outplay the outplay between the the conquering of the whole Middle East by the Alexandrian Greek Empire and then the breakup of that empire between the generals, the wars of the Diadochi, the consolidation of this, uh, this northern alliance, again extending from Turkey through Syria and Iraq and Iran into Central Asia, and then you have the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south, and the Bible tells us in Daniel 11, that in the last days, this historical conflict will essentially take place again. It will be replayed. And so in the days to come, I believe the Bible is telling us that we will see the consolidation of a Turkish, Iranian, Iraqi, Syrian alliance. We will see the consolidation of this unification process. And then at the same time, we will see the emergence of a North African a Neo-Ptolemaic dynasty, if you will, an Egyptian, Libyan, Cushan, uh, Cushite uh, alliance. And then eventually there is a military clash. Now, of course, what is the timing on all these things? Uh, we have no way of knowing. But I believe the Bible is saying that in the days ahead, we will see the reemergence of these two power bases, and then we will see a military conflict between these two entities with the king of the north, emerging as victorious and then historically what happened is after Antiochus Epiphanes was successful and victorious over Egypt over the king of the south as he made his way back up through Israel he then decided to take the land of Israel and that is where you have the historical episode of Antiochus slaughtering a pig in the temple in Jerusalem and these things are discussed in uh, the pseudopigraphal book uh, books of Maccabees in the uh, intertestamental period, uh, and it very well could be that the Antichrist likewise, after the conquering of Egypt and after the defeat of the North African alliance, will then turn his attention on Israel. And this would be the time period in the middle of the seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist is revealed and where he turns and where he, he no longer is extending a, an appearance of peace and security to the people of Israel but rather he reveals himself as an uh, anti-Semitic conqueror. So let's just walk through now just a little bit of uh, geostrategic discussion about the Middle East, just in order to contextualize some of what we have been uh, talking about. Let's begin with uh, the nation of Turkey. It's essential that we understand uh, if we're to really be uh, politically... Uh, you know, in tune, if we want to be able to be conversant with Muslims, are often very interested in the politics of the Middle East. And I find that being politically conversant and having a good grasp on what's taking place in the Middle East is always a wonderful uh, tool in order to open up dialogue with Muslims and, uh, and Middle Easterners in general. But we're going to begin with the nation of Turkey. Now, Turkey has been viewed over the past 80 plus years as this very uh, wonderful model 
of an Islamic nation which is secular, which is democratic, and this has been the nation that we as uh, Westerners and as Americans have desired to see replicated throughout uh, the Middle East. Uh, the United States has desired to see that model um, multiplied in various uh, Islamic nations. Uh, it all began with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who in 1923-24 abolished the caliphate, the government of Islam, which was the uh, it was under the headship of the Ottomans, again the Turks, who really ruled much of the Middle East, and that Islamic government was abolished. Ataturk believed that in order to uh, compete with the rising Western world and with Europe, it was essential that Turkey took its Islam and sort of put it on the back burner, and that they secularized and that they embraced a secular form of government. And through that, he believed that Turkey would have the uh, the intellectual and cultural ability to compete with the Western world. And so really for the past 80 or so years, you've had very much an Islamic nation, which was both secular and democratic. But in 2003, that all began to change very, very dramatically. And you had the rise of the AK party or the AK party, which is often uh, referred to as a moderate uh, Islamist party. The Western media often, is, often describes it as a moderate Islamist party. Uh, in English, the translation is the Justice and Development Party. And so with the rise of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, this is, he is now the, the Prime Minister of Turkey, again at the time of this filming, and if, in the years to come that could certainly change, but through his political prowess and through his... Uh, uh, very cunning abilities. He, he, uh, the AK party under his leadership has managed to take the seat of the prime minister. They have taken the presidency. They have taken the parliament. They have gained a majority of the seats in the parliament. In recent years, we've seen them take over the judiciary. They've literally hand placed their various Islamists into the, the seats of the judges throughout the judiciary. And then beyond that, then you end up with the military. This is really the final frontier, the most uh, critical uh, step in the uh, taking over of the government for the Islamists. Historically, uh, Ataturk was, was very, really, just genius in the system of checks and balances that he set up in that nation. And the, the military, historically, was always that entity which had the ability, if the government became too Islamic or too Islamist, the military would step in with a coup and replace the Islamist leaders with secular uh, Kemalist leaders in, in, in order to guarantee that the nation would always be secular. But then in recent years, we had this, uh, this conspiracy in Turkey known as Ergenekon. And Ergenekon essentially charged well over 200 of the top military leaders in Turkey with a conspiracy claiming that they were involved uh, in a plot to make the Islamist AK party look as though they were trying to blow up various things throughout the country. And as a result of these accusations, the AK party has arrested well over 200 top military leaders. And they've put them on this big show trial and they've now begun to place their own Islamist-leaning leaders into the military. They've removed, essentially through Ergenekon, the top tier of the Turkish military, and they're now putting their own people 
uh, into place. In recent years, they also passed, again through democracy, a bill which has allowed them to rewrite the Constitution of Turkey, giving them broad sweeping powers, again, over the military, over the judiciary, giving the, the prime minister far more power than he's ever had in the history of the, uh, of the Kemalist government in Turkey. What else? The local police. The local police, uh, by many accounts, are filled with uh, Gulenists. Gulenists are those which adhere to the teachings of Fethullah Gulen. He is the Islamist that lives today in Pennsylvania in the United States, uh, really under the protection of the American government. It's, it's very much this uh, mysterious, enigmatic relationship. Why is one of the most powerful uh, admittedly moderate, or at least on the surface moderate, Islamists in the world living uh, in seclusion in Pennsylvania. And there really are not any uh, clear answers on that. But through the teaching and the influence of Gulen, uh, the, the Turkish police force is filled with Gulenists. And in fact, Prime Minister Erdogan and President Gul are also, and, and most of the AK party, are Gulenists. They are also children of Said Baiduziman al-Nursi. He is the Islamist father of Turkey. And it was Nursi who articulated the specific form of Islam, which has become known as Turkish Islam. You see, while the various Islamists throughout the Middle East, whether it be Maududi uh, in the Indian subcontinent, or Hassan al-Banna in Egypt, the father of the Muslim Brotherhood, al Ikhwan, or uh, Ibn Taymiyyah or Ibn uh, al-Wahhab out of Saudi Arabia, the father of the Wahhabis. These guys were all essentially articulating a form of Islamism, a method to reclaim the glory uh, of the, the Islamic caliphate or to revive the caliphate. These guys were all articulating a form which involved really any means necessary including violence, including jihad. And so these guys, these, these radical Islamists, became the, father, uh, the fathers of, for instance, Al-Qaeda or Ikhwan or any of these uh, Jamaat al-Islamiyah, just the, 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 the multitude of various Islamist groups throughout the, the Middle East. On the other hand, in Turkey, you have the, the Nurjuluk movement, again, the children of Said Baduziman al-Nursi, who uh, then... Uh, gave birth to Fethullah Gulen. And these are all adherents to this very specific form of Islamism. Again, as I said, Turkish uh, Islam. And essentially what, what these Islamists have articulated is that rather than using violence in order to reclaim the glory of the caliphate, what they have said is that we will rather repackage Islam and present Islam specifically in a way that is very palatable to the West, in a way that is very given to science and uh, intellectualism, and is presented in a very, what I'll call, a decaffeinated Islam, Islam light, sort of a, a Christianized version of Islam, in such a way that rather than reviving the caliphate through military means, rather they would revive the caliphate by causing the non-Muslim world literally to roll out the welcome mat for them and say, we endorse Turkish Islam, this is the form of Islam that we desire to see replicated throughout the Middle East. In Turkish Islam, the Turkish Islamists have been wildly successful in their propaganda campaign to get the rest of the Western world to accept and embrace Turkish Islam as a wonderful, moderate, peaceful form of Islam. 
and get behind it. So this is what's coming out of Turkey. Now, here's what I want to do is uh, place yourself in the shoes. Try to imagine that you're an average Sunni uh, Arab Muslim just living somewhere in the Middle East. Now, of course, the Sunnis are the 85 to 90 percent majority sect of Muslims versus the Shia, that's the 10 to 15 minority sect, primarily in Iran, a bit in Iraq, up in Lebanon, and Azerbaijan, and then sprinkled throughout the, uh, the east coast of the Arabian Peninsula. And imagine that you are in the shoes of your average Sunni Arab, and you desire to see the revival of the caliphate. You see, for <clears throat> over the past 80 years, the, the caliphate has been on hold. Now imagine if you're a Catholic and for over 80 years the office of the Pope was abolished. There's this deep sense of, of this emptiness, this hole, this desire to see the office reestablished. And so it is without many, uh, with, without, within many of the Muslims throughout the world. They desire to see the caliphate reestablished. We've seen this played out in various uh, pro-caliphate groups such as Hizbut Tahrir and in various uh, neo-Ottoman Groups coming out of Turkey and even Al-Qaeda and the various Islamist groups, they all desire to see the revival of the caliphate. Now step back several years and what I want to do is describe the old order of the Middle East. The old order as it existed for roughly 30 years uh, right up until this radical shift that is taking place in early 2011. And so you look out at the Islamic world and you're saying, where is the hope? Who are the leaders that would rise up, that I can look to, that would revive the caliphate? And the first place that you look is to the Arab bloc. The Arab bloc are the nations of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Egypt. Most often referred to as Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and uh, Jordan. These three nations, as well as uh, some of the Arab Emirates. And you say, can these nations, do they have the leadership ability to revive the caliphate? Do they have the ability to take the leadership role of the Islamic world? And you look and you say, no, they're run by autocratic uh, dictators and corrupt monarchies. Of course, uh, uh, you know, autocratic dictators and monarchies have no place within legitimate Islamic theology. You know, you're going to say to yourself, these are merely uh, Western imports into the Islamic world. There's no place for a king within uh, Islamic theology. And you say these guys are Western, uh, they're Western puppet regimes supported by the United States. You say Egypt and Jordan, they have uh, peace treaties with Israel. They're, they're uh, in compromise with the great Satan, so to speak. And you say no. The Arab bloc does not have the leadership ability. They're not true Muslims. They, I, I, there's no hope in them. It's not to them that I will look for the revival of the caliphate. And so you cast your eyes over the Persian Gulf and you look to Iran and the leaders in Iran. You say, can they revive the caliphate? You say, well, these guys are bold, they're courageous. They thumb their nose at the Western world. They thumb their nose at Israel and that's very admirable. And as a result, the leaders of Iran are very popular throughout the Islamic world. However, to the majority sect of Muslims throughout that region, they are also Shia. In other words, they're kind of heretical. And so you go, ah, they're Shia, you know, my hope is not in them. They're not going to revive the caliphate. And you throw up your hands in frustration and you say, there's no hope. There's no hope. There is no one that can lead the Muslim peoples for the reestablishment of the caliphate. Then 
in the 90s and in the uh, early turn of the century. You had Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and some of these groups that were through jihad and through terrorism trying to claim that they would revive the caliphate. And there was a, quite a bit where you know, much of the Islamic world sort of uh, at least emotionally got behind them. Uh, but likewise, they were terrorizing much of, of the Islamic world as well. And, and really their ability hiding out in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to revive the caliphate. Yes, they blew, um, they blew some strikes against the Western world, but your hope really wasn't placed in them. Then, going back to 2003, suddenly something began to change in Turkey. Suddenly Turkey began to emerge. It began to reemerge in its old role, its old role as a powerful force. Suddenly, between the Arab bloc and the, the Persian, the Iranian bloc, the Shia bloc, and then the various Islamist groups, suddenly you had a new entity, a fourth uh, contender. And we saw the nation of Turkey. Suddenly, as we've discussed, it became taken over. The Turkish government became Islamist. And in the midst of that time, during that same time period, their economy was thriving. Turkey, the nation with the largest army in the Middle East, and suddenly, the affection and the attentions and the hopes and the dreams of many of the pro-caliphate Muslims throughout the Middle East are turning, the eyes of the Islamic world are turning to Turkey. And the nation of Turkey is emerging, re-emerging as a regional leader. And Turkey clearly under Foreign Minister Dovuk Tuglu uh, has, has extended a paternal influence throughout the region. They have... Uh, made it clear that they desire to revive their influence in the region. And so the Turks are playing right into this desire for the unification of the Islamic world. And we've seen in recent years in various economic and security treaties the breaking down of the borders between Turkey and Syria and Iran and the, uh, the shared interests in the region between this radical nation of Iran and the Islamist government in Turkey, and all of the things that we've discussed that would take place in the last days that are mentioned in Daniel 8 and 11, the reformation of the kingdom of the north and the king of the south is taking place right before our eyes. And as I said, in the years to come, there'll be plenty of twists and turns, and we don't know all that's going to take place. But I believe that at this point that the Bible makes it clear that we will see the reformation of the king of the north and the king of the south, the Neo-Seleucid Empire extending from Turkey all the way over through Iran, and then the Neo-Ptolemaic dynasty in the south, the North African coalition. As, as the uh, breakdown of these various nations takes place, we will see these things happen. Eventually, there will be a military conflict between these two entities with the Northern Alliance emerging as victorious. And this is, I believe, uh, what we will see in the days to come. Again, biblical prophecy is something that we need to hold to with a spirit of humility. Uh, you know, if I'm a betting man, then of course I'm going to bet that I'm going to get a lot of things wrong. But I believe the Bible is clear that these events that we've discussed are things that we'll see in the days to come. We need to keep our eyes open on the Middle East, understand what's taking place in the region. And again, understanding these things and discussing these things, it's a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful tool to have in your arsenal with regard to opening up dialogue with Muslims.
to discuss these things. And I, I have some of my, my favorite conversations with uh, uh, the guy that sold me my car. We sit in his office and just talk for hours about what's taking place in the Middle East. And it always leads to spiritual things. And then we begin discussing the Bible. And it's a fantastic open door. So with that, we finish this session. Amen.